Though we talk a lot on this podcast about uh, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists in the United States, that's mainly because the United States is very often trying to be the loudest one in the room in this space. However, America is not the only place where conspiracy theories take root and even thrive or originate. As you know, we've done previous episodes about Canada, Australia, and most recently about Turkey. I've been meaning to do an episode for a long time about the Middle East, but then my guest today reached out to me and saved me the hassle of doing all that research. And so he and I are going to talk about conspiracy theories in the Middle East, uh, specifically sort of how these narratives form and take root in a culture. Is it through instability? Is it through stability and people are just bored and don't have anything else to do? We're going to find out. Uh, my guest today is Adele Ali. He's formerly a patent and intellectual property lawyer. He was the founder of a medical device company and a healthcare and medtech advisor. He has a law degree from Hastings. He minored in political science at UC Irvine and majored in biological sciences and also did some undergrad work on Alzheimer's. So he's got quite a broad spectrum of knowledge. He is now the founder, producer, and host of the History Behind the News podcast, where he speaks to various scholars and historians about the historical context behind today's headlines and current events, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Thank you for talking to me today, Mr. Ali. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mr. DeWitt. So excited to start on this journey of getting into the depth of um, conspiracy theories in the Middle East, and there are a lot of them. Yeah. And of course, you know, the Middle East, we, we need to talk about what is that as well? <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot of people don't know. Exactly. It's interesting. That, let me just address that quickly. I'm starting a new podcast program. It, it will launch in January. It's called Unraveling the Middle East. Unraveling with two L's, kind of like the English spelling. And I've, I've already been promoting this. And you said, we need to talk about what is the Middle East. <laughs> I've had many people contact me, message me, email me saying, wait, the map you have on your logo is wrong. Egypt is not part of the Middle East. I have to go back and I say, yes, actually it is. And they say, well, what about Afghanistan? No, Afghanistan is not part of the Middle East. And the Middle East is literally a designation by Britain. For them, Near East was sort of the Slavic parts of uh, Europe where you are right now, although Czech is not. They're Slavs. They're, they're, they've they got a lot in common with the Bavarians, but they're Slavs. There you go. And uh, Middle East is where, you know, we want to talk about and then there's the far east so that's the middle east sort of geographical designation right yeah exactly well we will get into that and many other things of course i'd like to thank mr ali for talking to me today and everybody out there for listening please don't forget you can subscribe he says for the i don't know 50,000th time to this podcast and if you like what we do you can donate via our buy me a coffee page you can also review us on imdb so why don't you why don't you pause this and Go do that real quick. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. 
There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. going to talk about the Middle East. Obviously, we need to figure out what is the Middle East. Like you said, some people are like, no, Egypt is not part of the Middle East. Just like in um, the United States, I've heard it said that, uh, well, there's the South and then there's Florida and then there's Texas and they're not part of the South. And other people say, but they're totally part of the South. They were slaveholding states and Texans go, no, we're not part of the South. We're Texas. So it is an interesting question. What is the Middle East? And I think we see this, we see it in Africa as well, but a lot of the issues in the Middle East, it really, a lot of it is post-colonial malaise and confusion. Yeah, that really is. Uh, First of all, some people mesh uh, countries like Sudan uh, with the Middle East and Afghanistan. Uh, And technically they are not, and neither is uh, Armenia or Azerbaijan. This definition really goes to what the British called the Middle East. And, you know, you can find, you Google it, you can find, you know, go to um, Britannica Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, wherever. So the countries are Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, all the countries in in the Arabian Peninsula, Egypt, obviously Lebanon, um, West Bank, Gaza, Iraq, Jordan, and Israel. Uh, I hope I didn't leave any countries. And Libya? Would you would you count Libya in there or no? No, no, no. Way far out. Yeah, yeah. So like Libya, Algeria, Morocco, they're their own thing. Tunisia. Exactly. They are not in that strict definition. And I'm and I'm not supporting that definition. That's just a definition that's out there. We can say Middle East and North Africa. Obviously, there are many countries that have profound regional impacts on the Middle East. You know, we just named some of them, Libya, uh, Afghanistan, Sudan, but they are not strictly speaking, part of that designation of the Middle East. That's fair. I I do think some people kind of think Middle East means Muslims. And you're like, well, then you'd have to include Indonesia in that. And that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. No. Historically, many parts of the Middle East were not Muslim. For example, up to the eve of the first crusade, most of what we call Palestine was Christian. So that, that, that doesn't really play out well. All right, so when we're talking about the Middle East, uh, obviously they have their own particular history. Uh, On the one hand, very ancient cultures. I mean, the Fertile Crescent is where civilization started. I mean, there are, even in Southern Turkey, there are ruins that are so old that archeologists go, yeah, we don't know who built those. Yeah. Like, they they just don't, you know? It's like, I don't know, maybe sometime around 8,000 BCE, maybe? We thought those were just rocks, but then we did some testing and we were like, oh, they've been worked. We're constantly moving that timeline back and back. So on the one hand, super interesting, super ancient, maybe the most ancient cultures on earth that left any sort of permanent record behind for archaeologists to to poke around in. On the other hand, they were all part of the Ottoman Empire, or many, most of them were part of the Ottoman Empire. And then when that collapsed at the end of World War I, uh, different European nations came in and went, ooh, I'll have this, I'll have this, I'll have this. Uh, the British got the lion's share, and the British are 
terrible colonial overlords. They're just awful, especially when it comes to pulling out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they don't have an exit strategy. So you're referring to the Sykes-Picot agreement. One of the things that's really interesting about this period that you're talking about, I think an American audience can really compare it to America's history. Well, from 1789, or let's go back to when we started um, Bunker Hill, 1775, right? From 1775, we go to 1789. Now we're a nation. The Articles of Confederacy don't work. So we have a constitution by, you know, hook and crook. We get a constitution in. Now we're a nation. All the way to 1860, we're trying to put this nation together, keep it together, and we're expanding. And it doesn't work. And we have a full-fledged civil war. And it continues uh, into the 1950s where we get our 50 states. How does this relate to the Middle East? We had some 150 years without too much foreign interference to build the nation. We vanquished many of what we believe to be our enemies, many Native Americans. Uh, the British claim to Northwest Territory was sort of resolved during Polk's presidency, uh, and so was the Mexican question. We got all these things. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put that invasion of Mexico, but yes. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm being facetious when I, when I say that. But... Um, when we look at Middle East history, you have the Ottomans, and when they leave, none of these nations, some of them we call tribe, many of whom call themselves nations, had similar time that we did here in America to build their nations without interference from outsiders. I think that's, that's something that keeps on getting missed. And we come in there, we do a few things, then we go, and we expect them to fix it. Right. Why don't you guys modernize, damn you? Exactly. The reality is that their border enemies still exist versus in America, we resolve that. In America, we no longer had an existential threat after really even the war of 1812 was not an existential threat or you know the british attack in 1815 <laughs> new orleans was not an existential threat heck we already had a peace treaty with them so we we really don't appreciate that about the middle east if you look at for example what europe did to form nations they had to go through a lot of tumult millions of people died from the french revolution all the way to World War II for these nations to be built, for Germany to come from a bunch of principalities to a nation. And once that happened, well, then you had World War I and World War II. That's, I think, something that, especially when we talk about conspiracy theories, we need to appreciate about the Middle East. For example, democracy. Great, let's have democracy. But then, oh, no, 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 you cannot have this elected person. So we're going to have a coup d'etat in 1953 in Iran and remove your prime minister who is popular. And it's not just the Middle East thing. We helped a coup in 1973 in Chile. So we keep on interfering and we expect things to be fixed or people to see the world from our point of view. And that doesn't happen. I've had many scholars in my program to talk about that. One of the scholars that, that I, I, I have to confess talked about a country that I know so little about, and I'm ashamed of that, is Haiti, just next door to America. Haiti has gotten royally, royally screwed through the years. Royally, royally screwed by white powers, Europeans, and even Thomas Jefferson, when they were becoming a nation, Thomas Jefferson wouldn't even acknowledge or respond to the letters of the Celine, their leader. 
but we invaded them. We did a bunch of things to them. We have interfered as recent as the one that I know most about was Hillary Clinton going there and essentially telling them, no, you need to pick this person as your president. Never mind that he's a, a music pop star, knows nothing about politics. So I think here in America, we really don't appreciate that about the Middle East, how we have not left them be and how they have not had time to form their own nations, um, save perhaps uh, countries such as Iran and to a great extent, Egypt and, and obviously uh, Turkey. It's been argued that one way to look at, for example, the formation of religions is it starts off as one guy's ideas, and then he gets his family and friends involved, and pretty soon strangers are getting involved, and now it's, let's call it a, a cult. And then over time, that cult gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually, given enough time and influence, it becomes a religion. This is what we all used to think. Uh, this is maybe how these things get formed. In, in a similar fashion, I almost see a correlative between like on one side of the spectrum, it's rumors or speculative notions. And on the other side, it's a full-blown conspiracy theory. And the reason I bring that up is the culture in the Middle Eastern countries is so social. It's so verbal. It's so, hey, you go out, you talk. When you shop, you don't just go, what's the price? Here's my money. I don't talk to you. You haggle. You have conversations with people. It's really interesting that you, you draw parallels between the growth of religion, genesis of religion, with also sort of conspiracy theories. Maybe uh, religion is formed to oppose conspiracy theories, but I wanted to make a couple of comments about religion as, in general. I've done a startup, so I always think of religion as a startup. To get a good idea um, of what God, the concept of God was like in the Middle East and how different religions came about, I recommend a book by Karen Armstrong. It's called The History of God. It's one of those books that you probably will read twice and you'll probably trust through it because it's a very heavy read. She's great though. Just so everybody knows, she's a former Catholic nun who has written a number of just fascinating books about uh, religious leaders and religions themselves. Oh yeah. One thing that I just want to point out about the Middle East, the growth of Islam is much different than growth of uh, Judaism and Christianity. Islam sort of exploded, and there's the political Islam and the theology of Islam, and they're really two different conversations. Now, one of the things about the Middle East that when we talk about religion and conspiracy and all of that, we have conspiracy theories here in America and in the UK, I was just there this summer being me. I just chatted with a lot of people and they got conspiracy theories. And I've been to the Middle East and you have conspiracy theories in the Middle East. But there's a huge difference between these two cultures. And I'm fascinated by this. In the Middle East, you have a paucity of information. Right, of course you do. Where is this coming from? Where is this coming from? How can we learn more? So you make stuff up. But in Britain and here in America, you have a plethora of information. And isn't that intriguing how you have conspiracy theories in both cultures? Now, one of the things that people often attribute conspiracy theories to is 
lack of education, illiteracy of a larger part of the population, blah, 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 blah. Well, that doesn't hold in the US. In fact, some people that uh, disseminate conspiracy theories are highly educated. And it doesn't hold in the Middle East either. Actually, Iran is one of the top educated, graduate degree level educated countries in the world. So that doesn't really explain it. In fact, if you go back uh, to the time of the Shah before the 1979 revolution, the intelligentsia itself was starting to buy the uh, you know conspiracy theories. So education, I don't think is a factor. Well, do conspiracy theories happen when people feel insecure? Right. That's a common wisdom notion is that it must be that. Exactly. And I've thought a lot about this, but then in my program, I've had several scholars, uh, two of them that actually are quite renowned and worked for the, in the U.S. State Department uh, in charge of Iran, another one in charge of uh, China. And last night, I, as I was thinking about my conversation with you, I was reminded of them. If you look at China now, it's the opposite. They have extremely stable institutions. I mean, there's a lot of influx within the institutions themselves, but as far as the Politburo and, you know, the premiership and the presidency and all that, those are stable institutions and all the bureaucracy that goes along with it. And interestingly, same in Iran, they have a lot of strong institutions, yet there is a lot of conspiracy theories that people share with each other in both countries. So that doesn't fully explain the you know stability versus instability. Going back to the Middle East, um, I think in our modern times, conspiracy theories get started for two reasons. First is when people are disconnected in reality or by their own perception, maybe it's misperception, but still they feel disconnected from their governments. We have that happening in America right now. A certain group of Americans feel disconnected from the government. So we had January 6th and other bunch of other stuff, like you know the 2020 election uh, was rigged or whatever people like to believe. That's when conspiracy theories begin to swirl. And you have that a lot in the Middle East where governments don't truly represent the people, where they're not connected to the people. Many of the monarchs really <laughs> are just so this, the, the detached from their own people. That's just ridiculous. Look at Saudi Arabia or the Shah during his reign. Right. Famous for having the most expensive birthday party ever, I believe, at the time. It's so just out of touch with his own people. Exactly. Birthday of his nation that gobbled up something like two-thirds of the nation's GDP. So uh, in early 1970. So there is that. And you also have elections. We all know how ridiculous Iran's elections are. But you also have elections such as those recently in Turkey that... Although they're not rigged, they are so tilted to one side that people don't see the government representing them, right? Right, and the government in Turkey basically now basically runs all media. Now, you could argue, okay, but uh, fair enough, yes, I hear what you're saying, and yet doesn't that come down in the wash as a kind of an instability on an individuated level of, like you say, people don't feel connected to their government. I don't know that anybody's ever felt connected to their government outside of classical Athens, that we humans are, we're homo nerens. 
We are the storytelling creatures. We use language to talk about what ifs, and both past, present, and future. That's maybe the structure we crave. I spoke to someone recently who said that precisely. He's a social worker and used to work in uh, psychology. And he said, we humans hate narrative vacuums. We need to know why. Do you think the reason for that is that emotion is much stronger than facts? I don't know. I'll say this. I mean, I may be slightly on the spectrum because I, I don't have that problem. Uh, you know, people often go, well, I can't help how I feel. And I say, sure you can. <laughs> just don't, just don't feel that way. It's, it's not that hard. <laughs> or suppress it. If you're feeling something that's really stupid. I like your retort or your response to what I was talking about with respect to instability and you said, well, instability may still explain much of the conspiracy theories because it's individuated instability. Uh, and I guess to a great extent, that makes a lot of sense because those who can do leave many countries in the Middle East. Um, for example, after the Intifada, the first Intifada in the 1980s, many Israelis were leaving Israel because they felt this instability. Um, and I think when the existing structures of government, even if they are stable in structures, no longer address our fears, then we need to come out with stories that appeal to our emotions. Because I think all stories, as you were talking about, including um, conspiracies, are emotion driven, and that makes it much more powerful, whether it's about UFO or whether it's about uh, elections. One of the countries that we mentioned was Israel. The elephant in the room. <laughs> the elephant in the room. You know, and I thought of Israel as we were talking about democracies. Um, I've had several scholars from the Israel Democracy Institute uh, on my program uh, to talk about the structure of Israel's government and the perils that Israel faces to its democracy. And this happened earlier this year, you know, Mr. Netanyahu and his uh, judicial reform attempts. Um, one of the things that I love about Israel, and I'm not getting into the politics and the crisis of the current moment, because everyone's talking about it. Let's just step back. Let, let's put the Palestinian-Israeli conflict aside for a moment. I've always been hopeful that, that, that Israel can become a beacon of democracy for the rest of the Middle East. And part of that is that it needs to settle its own internal and external conflicts to really shine as a democracy. But uh, since we're on the topic of conspiracies, one of the things that we see over and over in history is really wild and richly sort of woven and fabricated conspiracy theories about the Jewish people and Zionism in general. In World War II, you had these two conspiracy theories that were being um, fed on the one side by Hitler, on the other side by uh, Stalin. Hitler uh, was saying that essentially communism and Bolshevism is, is Jewish. Exactly. Yeah. Big Jewish plot. They're going to take over the world. Exactly. And then that the Jewish people were responsible for the defeat of the German empire in World War I, which is absolutely nonsense. So that's the Hitler side that we all know about, the, that conspiracy theory. I, I think that the, 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 the 
funner, if I if I may use that word, the more fun uh, conspiracy theory comes from Stalin, who blamed Jews for the rise of the Third Reich, essentially calling Jews Nazis. It's like, you gotta be... <laughs> this is literally... Putin has taken it the exact, right out of that book. He's taken that page. He has, he has literally called the Jewish leader of Ukraine a Nazi. Yeah. And, 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 you know, what's scary about Stalin and later now Putin is not so much that <clears throat> they um, give credence to this sort of garbage, but the scariest thing is that they actually have an audience for it. Well, that's the thing. Putin doesn't believe this stuff. There's no way. He's a smart guy. He does not think any of this is true. He is using it in his dog whistle fashion to activate those people to be his shock troops and so on, which is, you know, it's basically, it's a new form of, it's like an online brown shirting, if you will, you know. Online brown shirting, you're, you're referring to the SS. Um, here's something that I recently learned and I wanna share with you. I just got done reading uh, Thomas Friedman's uh, book. Uh, his, his title is From Beirut to Jerusalem. That's a great book. That is a great book. He reported from, he lived in Lebanon, in Beirut, and he knows a lot about that. So Mr. Friedman is a opinion columnist in the New York Times, has been there for decades, and I think he he has won the Pulitzer Prize three times, three times or twice. Uh, so highly, highly respected. I watch him, I read him uh, quite a bit. I learned that in the 1950s and early 1960s, um, most Jewish people saw the Soviet Union, the USSR, as their second home. Not so much America. That changed over time. Uh, and he goes into details of why that is. Uh, and that's really fascinating. And that's always uh, intrigued me about the, the lives of Jewish people and the rise of Zionism in Russia and outside Russia and the Slavic countries. One of the things along with that, I think, maybe to counter that, to counter um, the strength of minorities, including Jewish people in, in, in Russia, is that during the imperial Russian period in latter stages, I think the year is 1903. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's the year. A letter is found. It's called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Oh, yes, this thing. This purports that Jewish people are conspiring, scheming to dominate the world. Uh, all, all 12 to 50 million of them are going to dominate the world. Well, by 1920, the London Times completely debunks it, that this is a forgery through and through. It's a total fabrication, yeah. Yeah, but there's more. A respected German newspaper in Germany publishes an article that says this is a forgery. This is debunked. We researched it. This doesn't fly. Yeah, that was Frankfurter, Frankfurter Zeitung uh, wrote that. Oh, there you go. You know this. Yet by 1933, this is part of German kids' school curriculum. Can you believe this? This becomes governments that is trying to push an ideological agenda, even though they know this is BS. They use this to appeal to people's fears. They create a crisis out of nothing. That's one of the reasons why conspiracies last for a long time and, and, and they spread like wildfire because you have a sense of crisis, like aliens, UFO is about to take over the world. Right, any second now and we have to act. And you're like, okay, doing what? You're posting on Reddit. I don't know that that's gonna topple the cabal there, buddy. You know. <laughs> so 
Another one that also comes from the land that is now Russia is, is, is I had a fascinating conversation with a scholar of the Jewish diaspora. And really for about an hour, he educated me and our audience uh, about what are Ashkenazi Jews, what are Sephardic Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Persian Jews, and all of that. And there, and, and, and how there were pogroms and, and, and dislike of Jews and what, what were the economic reasons for it? We won't get into all of this. But one of the things that came out, Mr. DeWitt, was this. The Jewish kingdom of Khazar, the Khazars. So I asked him, I said, what is this all about? So this comes out somewhere 650 to about 1000 AD. And um, he tells me how a Sephardic Jew from Spain finds this um, kingdom and writes about it. Not that he discovered it, it was there, but he brings this information to the West. And he actually goes and meets with um, the kings the tribal leader, the king that converted to Judaism. So the conspiracy theory is Ashkenazi Jews, Jews in, in Germany and other parts of Europe, um, they are not related to Jews that once lived in the land of Israel, Palestine. They are really the Jews that came from Khazars. And, and this has been debunked. Uh, you know, scientists have done tests. It, it, DNA doesn't support that. There are a lot of conspiracy theories about uh, Israel and Jews, and it's unfortunate because I think um, they have a lot to offer. You get this stuff, and then you get this, so then you have this, like, the, the Jews are just icky. And then from the Christians and from some of the Muslims, though some of the Muslims are like, yeah, but they're people of the book, so, you know, they're cool. Places like Cordoba in Spain, which was Muslim for a long, long time, huge Jewish community, everybody got along, until they don't, until somebody gets up there and goes, eh, I need an enemy. And I honestly, and I think part of it is, is because they could lend money for profit. Uh, they could lend money and charge interest. And these, these guys were like, well, I don't want to pay them back. How can I not pay them back? Hey, guess what? If there were no Jews in my lands, I wouldn't owe Jewish people any money. How can I get rid of them? What about that blood libel business? That's that's happened in Christian kingdoms a lot where kings uh, owed money to uh, the Jewish community. And one way to um, get rid of that debt is to suppress and oppress uh, the Jewish community. Um, with respect to... Uh, uh, I need an enemy. That's such a just discerning point that you're making. It's really the need to create a boogeyman to distract from your own problems. Yeah, and, and actually almost anything will do. I mean, we can see in the modern conspiracy sphere, imaginary shape-shifting lizards from an interdimensional rift in space near one of the stars in the constellation of Orion. That's the enemy. <laughs> well... When it comes, this is a deduction, uh, when it comes to a group such as, let's say, Armenians within the Middle East who have more connection with Europeans, and in this case, also perhaps Jewish people who may have connection to their Jewish counterparts in Europe in business and in diplomacy, then it's easy to picket them and create all sorts of conspiracy theories. So we had a scholar of Jewish history, also an archaeologist, come to our show, and he talked about the golden age of um, Muslims and Jews, where they lived in uh, relatively better lives, had better lives than their counterparts, uh, Jews that lived in Christian kingdoms. 
and they were able to coexist. This is not a perfect situation, but they were able to coexist much better. Um, and he talks of this treasure trove of documents that were found in a Geniza in Cairo uh, that uh, Solomon Schechter found. And that's a whole story unto itself. And how in that Geniza, there were more than 900 years of Hebrew, Aramaic, Persian, Arabic, and all sorts of different texts about the lives of Jews, like women owning business. Uh, there, were, there were something like 411, I forget the number, different occupations that Jewish people had. So it's really fascinating. Um, I think it, the reason I, I mentioned that, this has nothing to do with conspiracy theories, but I think for our time now, the crisis that we have in the Middle East now in between uh, in Gaza, um, I think it's important to know that we can go back to that time. There is a possibility. I think it's really important that we dispense with this this talk that Jews and Arabs all have always, always hated each other, or Shias or and Sunnis have always, always. No, when you do that, it sort of uh, gives us the permission to shrug our shoulders and say, mm, "It's not solvable. Let's just walk away." The Jewish thing is certainly a huge part of the modern. Middle Eastern and Arab conspiracy, right? Uh, a bunch of people say that uh, al-Baghdadi, the guy that started ISIS and ISIL, uh, he's actually a Mossad agent. Anybody you don't like is a Mossad agent. Snowden is a Mossad agent. Everybody's a Mossad agent, right? So you got this whole thing. That's certainly a huge part of that is like, well, the Jews are behind everything. And the Americans are very pro-Israeli. And it has been argued, I think, not accurately that there would be no Israel without America. I don't think that's true. And so you have this idea of either Israel is America's puppet, or usually it's the other way, which is America is, is become a completely Zionist country, and it is just pretending not to be. This is used as an excuse to sort of distract and confuse the public for what I think is, in the Middle East, the main conspiracy theory. And the main conspiracy theory is, like you said, there was this golden age. There was a time on this earth when the Muslim world was it. It was the shizzle. This was the place. You wanted to be in Baghdad. You wanted to be in Sevilla. You wanted to be in Cordoba. This is where cutting-edge sciences, cutting-edge philosophy. People are having interesting conversations in cafes, on the public squares. They're writing things. They're inventing things. Europe is going, oh, what is this? Can I eat it? And they're, you know, they're they're living this, this incredible high culture life. And now they're not. And the question is, so for the, for the religious fundamentalists, the answer is because we have gone away from God. Unlike Christianity, Islam has a blueprint contained within it for how to structure your society. And we have stopped doing that. So God is punishing us by putting us down the pecking order or someone's keeping us down. Who could it be? Well, who's on top now? Um, America. <laughs> um, let's let's peel that back a bit. Uh, one thing you were talking about, uh, you know, the Middle East uh, was it was the shizzle. There's a great story. Um, they talk about Tamerlane. So uh, he beats the early Ottomans. This is this is early 1400s, 
And, you know, he takes Constantinople. He's around Constantinople. The Ottomans don't yet have the city itself. So he's sitting there victorious. What do you think he does at that point? And this, this is amazing history. He calls a bunch of accountants and travelers and asks them, should we cross and go into Europe? And you know what they say? There is not enough wealth to plunder in Europe. He literally makes a business decision. So we're not going to go to Europe because there's not enough booty to be had. So he returns and goes back to um, China, but he dies on the way over there. Uh, as I as I share with you, uh, in January, we're, we're launching a whole new podcast. It's also it's a production of History Behind News, but it's a separate podcast. It's called Unraveling the Middle East. Our first episode, our guest is a re renowned economic historian from Caltech. And in there, I ask a very simple question. I say, why did the Middle East fall behind? And having fallen behind, why did it stay behind? Japan was behind, it caught up. Why didn't that happen in the Middle East? So one of the things that he shared with me that blew my mind, he said the printing press did not enter the Ottoman Empire until the late 1700s. I'm like, what? How is that even possible? But the Ottomans were in contact with Europe all the time. How could, like, what, what the heck? Well, as it turns out, religious leaders of the Ottoman Empire forbid it because that printing press, that's the source of evil. That's why we're down. That's why we have started to lose our dominance, military dominance in the Mediterranean Sea. And that's why we're no longer expanding west and north to Vienna and all these, because all these foreign ideas are coming out so quickly with this printing press. We don't want that here in the Middle East. Right, we can't We can't get our censors to read it fast enough to decide what to redact. <laughs> so you, you used this phrase, you said, someone is keeping us down. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's called persecution complex. And, and it's been argued that the Middle East, among other places, uh, South America and countries uh, also, especially dictators, very much have this sort of grievance of some sort like you know we're not getting our fair share and someone must be keeping us down and from one perspective it's also a sort of release for them it also absolves them of responsibility for their own setbacks oh you know it, it, these countries would have been perfect but for the british but for the americans right for example if we mentioned thomas uh, uh mr friedman's book in there when he talks about lebanon he was talking about how the Lebanese blame everybody, Americans, uh, Israel, Turkey, the Brits, the French, everyone was to blame but themselves. You see this repeated again. It's the same. It's, it's honestly, it's almost exhausting. It's the same stuff again and again and again. We see this thing and we see it in tragedies, for example, this need to blame. So it's like we have a psychological need to blame immediately. The moment we have a strong emotional spike, it's like we can't handle it. So we, we go, who can I blame for this? We haven't looked into this. No one knows how this happened yet, right? Right. And because here's the thing, someone's to blame and it ain't me. It absolves us of responsibility of, of our own agency, right? Because I'm the aggrieved one. I'm the one that's pissed off. So I can't be the one to blame. So who do I blame? And now you have, I mean, today it's a veritable buffet on a cruise ship. I will take your pick who you'd like to blame. In the Middle East, they very often, though, choose the big dogs, the British, the Americans, uh, the Zionists, 
and uh, and then they come up with these ridiculous stories, you know, spy animals, sharks with cameras on their heads, and wasn't that a crazy story about Egypt? Yeah, absolutely hysterical. And then there was, a, I think, there was a guy in Iran who said that the uh, Israelis had trained, specially trained radiation eating lizards that they sent over the border to try and find where they were working on their nuclear program that they weren't working on and they were special like geckos that could eat or detect radiation and you're like you don't know anything about lizards obviously pal but here's the thing he doesn't need to his audience isn't biologists and, and zookeepers his audience is people who are pissed off or maybe people who aren't pissed off yet but maybe i can get them pissed off and then they'll vote my way or at least stay out of the way when I cancel elections. Exactly, and they, you know, people that need some sort of rage. Um, you know, you mentioned Iran. I just want to add this big conspiracy theory. Uh, I've heard it for forty years now. Uh, so finally, I actually discussed it with um, a scholar of uh, director of Middle East studies at Princeton about Iran, and that is that. Many Iranians say this, uh, even uh, the leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, he finally got outraged and he, uh, he said, stop saying this, that the U.S. removed the Shah. The U.S. was responsible for the downfall of the Shah. So, well, that would just take all their legitimacy and mojo away, wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, the, yeah, how you could see how Ali Khamenei would be upset at this, but uh, and the answer is is a dispositive no. It's not the case. In fact, the Carter administration in those crucial three months before uh, the Shah left and Khomeini came, and finally everything was over was in complete disarray in how to respond to the Iranian uh, revolution. They thought that, nah, this is, this is you know, the Shah is bulletproof. This could never happen. But Iranians uh, always point to General, um, I forget his first name, General Heiser, who was a four-star Air Force general in the U.S. Air Force, was sent there in just, just weeks before the revolution's conclusion. And they're saying that he talked to the military, Iran's military, to stand down and let Khomeini come in. So uh, that's as far as Iran goes, that's a huge conspiracy theory. And it also... I guess makes some people from the Middle East, uh, in this case Iranians, feel as though, you know what, things would have been fine had the US not intervened. Things would have been fine had Russia not intervened. Or it, to, to, to a great extent, uh, that that is not entirely incorrect. But the point is, when we come up with these conspiracy theories, uh, whether it's in the US or the Middle East, we really create the sense that our lives would have been better had these bigger forces not been at play. Which is funny because, uh, I, and again, I think in the in the Muslim world, the Islamic world, religion is still very, very, very important. I'm not saying that there aren't secular Middle Eastern citizens, but not to the extent that we have here in Europe or, or, or even in the United States. I mean, even in the U.S., you see this a similar argument being made. Secularization, which is defined as my personal specific interpretation of, in, in that case, the Bible, uh, is responsible for all the ills of our country. Why do we have fires? Because we don't have the Ten Commandments on our courthouses. 
And uh, it's called the secularization thesis. And I think it's, it's spread quite strongly throughout the Middle East because the, the culture, the society, and the religion since the introduction of Islam have always kind of been of a piece in many ways, not like in the West. The closest I think you can come to is Catholic, is, the, is maybe the closest parallel that we have. But I mean, look at Italy. You, you were in Italy. Um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Italy because really it's, it, Catholicism, I mean, is, is big over there, but it's pretty much a secular country in, in culturally. Um, about 20 years ago, I came across this Wall Street Journal essay, and it blew my mind. It said that, again, this is 20 years ago, so don't quote me on it, that something like 50 plus percent of the mosques in Iran have had to be shut down, shuttered. You would say, why? Because most Iranians don't practice Islam anymore. And in many ways, it makes sense because when you shove something constantly down someone's throat, eventually they throw it up. And you have that in countries such as Iran, where at some point in the 70s, when the Shah was there, there was a certain level of reverence towards religion. Yeah, you'd go out, have your drink, and come and make sure that you still go and pay attention to your grandma and her religious holiday. You see that in Catholicism as well, uh, or you see that in cultural Jews who are not really practicing, but they still have reverence for their religion. Yeah, I'm, remind, I'm reminded also of uh, a lot of Orthodox countries, especially Greece. That's like Greece is very much a hedonistic uh, culture. And yet, you know, those guys with the beards and the robes walk by and everybody kind of like just chills out for a minute. Hello, good to see you, Father. Good to see you. And then, and then they go right back to hawking their wares. Exactly. You had that in Iran, but now what you have is young children running and slapping turbans off the mullahs in Iran. That's how bad. So I think Iran, actually, its population is overwhelmingly now young and secular. And everything that we talked about, uh, I'm always, these days, there's just so much anti-Semitism going on and insensitivity. It's kind of silly to say someone is pro or against Israel. Israel is a country. You're not pro or against Denmark or, or like Bolivians, you know? So whenever I make comments, I'm always making sure that it's, it's sensitive and it's not, doesn't come across as, and I think everything we said was very um, kosher. Here's the thing. If, if the word Israel is a trigger word for you, then it's a trigger word for you, you know? Just like if pickle is a trigger word for you, I'll do my best to not say pickle, but if we're at a burger joint, I'm probably going to say pickle and you're just going to have to suck it up. So the Middle East is actually a vast swath of land. And yes, while a lot of the countries that are in that area are Muslim and have a lot of commonalities and similarities, they're also very, very different in other ways. As The Onion put it uh, some years ago, the solution to the Middle East is to divide the entire region into 317 million separate nation states. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Everybody gets their own country. In many ways, that would be sort of the apotheosis of the Enlightenment, which is quite interesting. Uh, we've had a very interesting conversation today with my guest, Adele Ali, uh, among the very interesting 
background he has in uh, law and intellectual property and medicine. Uh, He also runs the History Behind the News podcast, where he has legitimate scholars and historians, people who don't just have an opinion but know something, uh, talk about a number of things. And by the time this episode is live, he should have already started his spinoff, which is, what was it called again? Unraveling the Middle East. Unraveling with two L's. Unraveling the Middle East. Unraveling with two L's. The British spelling, I like that. Uh, It brings to mind the Gordian knot. Alexander, of course, found a very special but aggressive way to deal with that thorny problem. Again, thank you, sir. Super interesting. I, I could literally, I could do this for five hours, especially over drinks. Uh, oh, I love it, Mr. DeWitt. Over a couple of drinks. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for being on, and thank you, everybody out there, for listening. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.